You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great. And each week on this show, America's Voice for Energy, I have the opportunity to interview the experts who helped me with or influenced the topic of each, each week's column. This week, my column is titled, Obama's Climate Legacy Has Its Day in Court. This is about the Clean Power Plan. And if you've been listening to America's Voice for Energy frequently, you know I've addressed this many times. Back in November, the November 5 show, as a matter of fact, I was honored to have Attorney General from West Virginia, Patrick Morrissey, on our show talking about uh, the lawsuit uh, against the Clean Power Plan that was filed by more than 150 different entities. This week, this past week, September 27th, the Clean Power Plan finally had its day in court. And today on America's Voice for Energy, we have such a great show. I'm thrilled to have with me for the first segment the Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton, who is the co-lead in this lawsuit. Segment two and three, we have two of the attorneys who filed briefs on this case and who were in the room to hear the oral arguments. And in our closing segment, we have Congressman Kevin Kramer, who is Trump's energy advisor, talking about how a Trump presidency would change the dynamic of the clean power plan. So let's get started right away. Attorney General Paxton, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Happy to be on. I appreciate you having me on. Well, as I said, we've got a great show lined up, and I appreciate you kicking it off for us. Tell us, how did you feel as being, you know, you've been part of this process from the very beginning, and then to finally have this day in court. Tell us what it was like. You know, it was actually pretty amazing. It was a long day. We were there, I think we started around 9.30. Of course, a lot of us were in the courtroom around 8, 8.15, uh, getting ready and getting set up. But it went till about, I guess, around 6 o'clock. So it was, it was a pretty long day of arguments uh, with 10 judges sitting en banc, which means that we had the entire court except one judge that was Judge Garland that recused himself because he is obviously being nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court by President Obama. So, you know, we had a large court. They, uh, they asked a lot of questions, and so ultimately we, I think the arguments would a lot, went a lot longer and maybe into more detail than, than most anticipated. Now, as the co-lead on this case, were, were you presenting oral arguments as well? No, I had a, one of my team members, a guy named Cam Barker, who's one of our solicitor generals. Uh, he was part of the team arguing. There were numerous lawyers on our side arguing different aspects. They had a lot of you know angles. But, uh, we had a lot of lawyers. They had a lot of lawyers. I was trying to add up the, the billable hours in the room, and it, it was a little scary. I would imagine it would be very, very scary. What do you think are the strongest arguments that were presented based on how the judges reacted for your side for the challengers? Well, I think the question here is, did Congress clearly delegate to the agency the power to have such a significant impact on the economy and on a political question? And so when, when that's the question, that was the question here, um, I think 
what we tried to point out to the court was there was no clear delegation of floor of this type of authority that basically industry and if, if they if the court goes for this they are allowing an, a massive transformational expansion of power by the it was a transformative power now from the reviews that I read um, it seemed like some of the the judges were questioning your side uh, as to why is this so transformative well I think it's, it was a pretty easy answer for us and that is they have they have set a standard here for uh, for the coal industry, which, you know, in, in West Virginia alone, you know, generates 96% of their electricity. In Texas, you know, it's more like a third to 40%. But it, it was as simple, simple as, as, as this. Why is it that in setting these standards, they set a standard that no coal plant could meet? In other words, they set unattainable standards. So they left, the coal, they left our electricity, the ability to generate electricity in a very difficult position because the only choice then that they have is to either the industry can either shut their power plant down, which obviously would have a negative impact, or they can subsidize their competitor. Well, if you're in, if you're in the business of generating electricity and those are your two choices, they, first of all, they clearly were not granted that authority to make that change by Congress. But second of all, the impact is severe, and it will have severe economic impact on our, on my state and on the entire country. Do you feel like the judges, when, when they presented that, did, did they seem to grasp that? Certainly some of them did. You know, it was different. Uh-huh. You, know, you know, there was, there was uh, a few judges that didn't ask a lot of questions. hard to know which way they were thinking. Certainly there were, there were, there were judges on both sides of this, but they all seemed to grasp some of the how great uh, an authority this would give the EPA. Now, whether they think they have that authority, that you know, I don't know how these judges are going to come out. But I, I think there were certainly some of these judges that thought that if you were going to give this type of ability to the EPA, that Congress would have had to clearly speak. And that's based on you know past Supreme Court cases where they've said if you're going to grant, if, if there's going to be a a major political or economic decision made by any agency of the government. Congress had to clearly give that authority. You know, I watched the press conference that you were a part of uh, after the hearing, and uh, I saw Senator Inhofe uh, talk about, and I was able to incorporate this in my column, and for our listeners, there is a column. And uh, Senator Inhofe pointed out that for the past 15 years, uh, the Senate has repeatedly rejected carbon regulation, uh, generally in the form of cap and trade. And so we pointed out that what President Obama has done is, be, is use regulation to get around Congress and do through regulation what he could not do through legislation. And, of course, as we know, that's, this is not the only case where he's done that. Well, you make a good point. It is not the only case he's done that. It's uh, been, he's been doing it repeatedly, and which is why my state has 15 lawsuits against him in the last year and a half. But this is another example of that. There, and God bless you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, it's it's definitely clear that that Inhofe, Senator Inhofe is right that, that, that this has been debated, it's been argued, and Congress has been unable to pass a cap and trade program where basically you know existing sources that can't meet the standard can kind of by spending money on, on investing in other sources of power they can transfer credit 
so that they can continue to run a less clean power source. But the Congress debated it and turned it down, and now the EPA and through through the administration are trying to do this without, again, without any congressional approval. And, you know, this goes to this whole issue of, of something that our founders really were, were concerned about, which is the whole separation of powers and, and having three different branches of government because they did not trust any one person or any small group of people to have too much power. So they, they created three branches of government. They have clear function. And the clear function of the executive branch, and the EPA is under the executive branch, is to implement law, not make law. And Congress, clear authority under the Constitution, is to ma- is to make law, not implement it. So if we are if we are eliminating the power of Congress to make those decisions, we're moving away, away from separate separation of powers, and we're moving towards control by one branch of government. Yeah, and, and I hope that uh, the court, you know, sees that because I understand that. Most people expect that the decision to come, uh, the decision that will come down in a few months, to be along the ideological lines of the court, which would mean in order for the challengers, uh, detractors to win, that you'd, you'd need to bring along uh, two of the uh, judges that are appoint- were appointed by Democrat presidents. That's correct. We are at disadvantage. You'll remember. That court was somewhat stacked by Obama when Harry Reid changed the voting rules in the Senate from 60 to 51 so that they could put more Obama appointees on that court. And so that's what they did. So, yeah, we are at a disadvantage from the standpoint of having more Obama appointees on there. But I am hoping that even they can see, I think they can, that this is a, this is a massive shift in power, and it, it, is not, it is not authorized by the Constitution for a, an agency to make these kind of changes in law. So, you know, you say you you're, you're feel positive that you'll be able to bring a couple of those along that they're, they're going to see, based on the, the hard facts of the case and the law, that this is uh, an executive overreach. What, what, do they have to decide, uh, so do they have to say yes or no, or can they say this part is okay, this part is not okay? You know, judges can do whatever they want to do. They can, they can <laughs> you know what I'm saying, they can say yes to whatever part they want to yes to but fundamentally I just the, the main thing that I hope that they that they address and that they they, they stop is the, this idea of the EPA setting unattainable standards and enforcing basically the, the, the types of energy that they don't want produced uh, to, to go out of business because that's fundamentally they are they are not just creating rules to regulate an industry they're actually creating rules to eliminate an industry and that if, if Congress wanted to do such, such a transformational change in our in our the way we do electricity then they would have spoken to the other main point to think about here too is that the states had authority to also regulate they could cut they could do variances that 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 would help some of these uh, more less clean producing power plants to adjust over time using the best technology that was available by if we go with the EPA ruling it eliminates all state involvement and basically takes the states completely out of it. So we also have Tenth Amendment issues here that are affected. And so not only is Congress authority being challenged, but also the states. And so in those issues is where you see, I believe, the strength of this case is. Absolutely. It's in the separation of powers. It's in the Tenth Amendment, you know, the rights of states, because Congress specifically gave us, as states, authority to have some regulatory 
power over these issues. And if this passes, if this goes through, then we're eliminated from what Congress initially envisioned when they passed the law. Yeah. We've got about 35 seconds left. Uh, can you tell us when, it, when the day was all over, and maybe this is a little coarse terminology, but did you and your colleagues high-five, or did you and your colleagues wipe your brow and say, whew, I'm so glad that's over? You know what? I, I actually found the day very encouraging because I know that we made the best arguments and that our arguments based on the law were the strongest made that day. Now, whether that wins the day, I don't know where we're at in our country as far as the law, but we clearly made the best statutory arguments. We made the best um, constitutional arguments, and we, make, we made the best states' rights arguments. And if, if the arguments actually matter, then we should win the case. Well, that's encouraging to hear. We've been talking with Attorney General for the state of Texas, Ken Paxton. Thanks for taking the lead on this case. And uh, we look forward to watching what will happen in the months ahead. Well, thank you for having uh, covering such an important topic that, that will affect every American and every business in this country. It is certainly important, and we're going to continue this conversation. Please stay with us for the next segment on America's Voice for Energy. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and while it got little attention this past week, there was a very important court case, uh, oral arguments that took place, in Washington, D.C., and we're discussing that on today's edition of America's Voice for Energy. In this segment, we're going to be talking with one of the petitioners, and we're going to hear all about the case, uh, and I'm excited to have with us for the first time, Kayam Mendelbau. Thank you for joining us today, and you are counsel to the Energy Environment Legal Institute. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you very much for having me on the program. Now, you were there on September 27th. Uh, now, were you pleading the case or were you observing? What was your role there? Well, I was one of the authors of the brief that we filed. I was someone who helped work on that. I was not one of those who engaged in the oral arguments. We left okay. some of the best oral advocates in the country. But I was there observing and providing what assistance I could. 
Well, you you mentioned that these were some of the best in the country who were presenting. Um, as an attorney yourself, was that interesting for you to watch? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the oral advocates who were presenting the uh, petitioner's case did an excellent job of explaining why this rule is so fundamentally illegal, unconstitutional, and economically harmful for the country. Now, I've read, you know, a lot of reviews on this uh, and wrote my column on it for, my, for October 3rd, so I've followed up on this, but, and I've written on it previously, you know, when the Supreme Court issued the stay. But for our listeners who might not be as familiar with the case, um, can you kind of define when you say the petitioners presented a really good case, who are they and, and what was the general theme? Well, the petitioners are 27 states, dozens of energy companies, trade associations, unions, and not-for-profit organizations that have all come together to oppose President Obama's clean power plan, which is essentially a power grab by the Environmental Protection Agency that would give it unprecedented control over an area it knows virtually nothing about, namely America's energy sector. So this is a really important uh, hearing, and, and I, it's my understanding, uh, was this called a hearing, or what do you call what took place on the 27th? What took place was oral arguments before the entire D.C. Circuit. It was, it was oral advocacy on a case that had already been fully briefed in written briefs. That is, we had put forth our case explaining why the rule was illegal. The government had responded to that, explaining why they thought the court should uphold the rule. We had replied to the government's response. And now the court was allowing both sides to orally put forth their case and to ask questions that the court had before the court decided what ruling it was going to make. Now, from my understanding, there were several really um, unusual situations uh, in this particular case. One, that it was held, heard by the, the oral arguments were heard by the entire court, and also that the oral arguments uh, took much longer than normal and longer than was uh, stated was going to be allowed. Am I correct on that? Assuming yes, can you explain that? Absolutely. Uh, all of that is correct. First, let me explain that a normal case, and particularly a normal administrative case where an agency puts forth a rule like this, is first heard by a three-judge panel. Three of the judges of the circuit will hear the case and make a decision, and then only after that, if the full court feels it's necessary, will they all of them sit and listen to the case. But here, now, in this, in this case, we already had a three panel, uh, three-judge panel hear this case. Is that correct? No. Actually, that's the interesting part. No three-judge okay. panel heard this. The court, recognizing just how substantial and important this was, decided to skip that step, and they canceled the three-judge panel and took this directly to the full circuit. And that's something that is almost unprecedented. It hasn't happened in almost a decade in the D.C. Circuit. The last time was when the full panel took the case directly in the antitrust case against Microsoft. So you can understand that this was a huge decision by the D.C. Circuit, that this is just not something that they ever do. And so, that and so for, for, us, for us uneducated in this, what does that mean? I think you were just about to tell me that when I interrupted you. Sorry about that. Oh, of course. 
what it means is that the circuit recognized that this is not something that can just be left to three judges picked out of the circuit. This is something so important, so fundamental to both law and to the U.S. economy that it needs the input and the discussion and ultimately a decision that reflects all of the legal wisdom of the entire circuit. Uh, and it makes for a longer process, but hopefully it makes for a better outcome. I, now, I would think, looking in from the outside, as someone with zero legal background, though I have followed this story closely, you know, I would think, okay, they heard the case, uh, end of the day, they make a decision, bang the gavel, boom, we're done. But that's not how it happens. No, that's not how it happens at all. Whatever <laughs> ends up happening, the uh, Supreme Court will get a chance to weigh in. Yes, everything I've read says that no matter what, what, no matter which side wins, the side that supports the Obama administration's proposal or the side that, that opposes it, everybody I have talked to agrees and everything I've read agrees this is going to end up in the Supreme Court. Well, it absolutely will. And for one thing, we, our side, the petitioners opposing this rule, got from the Supreme Court earlier this year a stay of the rule. What that meant was that the rule couldn't go into effect. And when the Supreme Court issued that, they said not only is the rule held off, is it stayed now while the D.C. Circuit hears it, but the stay continues even after the Circuit hears it until the Supreme Court decides whether or not they're going to take it up. So even after the D.C. Circuit issues its decision, the rule can't go into effect until someone appeals it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decides what it's going to do, or until both sides agree that there will be no appeal to the Supreme Court. But given that there's almost certainly going to be one, the Supreme Court is very likely to end up hearing this matter because it's already expressed substantial interest in this matter. And I understand from, from what I've read that no one expects that to be any sooner than 2018. I don't know if it will be that late, but certainly not before 2017 which for the uh, term that begins in 2017, mm -hmm. uh, it would be very unlikely for the court to take. So the Supreme Court's term runs from September, October through the following May. So they're just starting their 2016, 2017 term now, and they already have selected cases for it. Given that So this case, no matter what, won't make it into that schedule. It's very unlikely. Occasionally the Supreme Court will take emergency cases into the current term, but in this case that's probably not going to happen. It's very likely that if this matter does get heard, it would not be heard till the Supreme Court's 2017-2018 term, or possibly not even until the 2018-2019 term. I mean, it's very wow. hard to speculate on that, but it's very likely that it would not be for quite some time, because even once this, the D.C. Circuit issues a ruling, there will be a lot of work to be done as parties decide whether to appeal, prepare the appeals, and then all of the work that goes into writing Supreme Court briefs. And believe me, that's a lot of work. Well, you've, you've outlined well for us kind of the, the, the process. Let's go to the, the other issue of the timing of the, the arguments on, on Tuesday. Well, the arguments were very long, and that's also very unusual. So the D.C. Circuit works quickly. Usually oral arguments for a case are 90 minutes, sometimes 60 minutes. 
very complex cases might go for two and a half hours. But this case was scheduled for almost five to six hours initially, and it ran well past that. The morning session ran 50% longer than what the court had ordered. And that was because the court had so many questions for, the, for those presenting that time just continued on. They gave everyone additional time because they wanted to find out more information from those making statements. And so I think that shows just how both interested the judges were in the case and how important they felt these issues were. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big case, and I think in general, I, I've written on it and, and done my show on it several times as the news warrants, because I think the average person out there is really still clueless about when I mention in a semi-social setting, you know, about what they'll say, well, what are you working on? Well, the clean power plan, and they look at me with glazed eyes. I think the average person has no clue that this important case is going on. No, and the thing is, there's so much to unpack in this case, and that's why the circuit had to take its time, because there's a large number of factual, scientific, and legal issues all packed into one case and one you know, set of rules that the Environmental Protection Agency is trying to impose, and all of that has to be examined. I mean, the Obama administration is claiming that this all goes to the global warming issue, but as the petitioners have explained, the actual effect of this rule is going to have, at most, an incredibly marginal effect on global temperatures, something like over the next 100 years, one-tenth of the degree of warming change. Yes, and a tremendous expense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, both sides debate about the expense, but with no one questions is that we're talking about tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in expenses upon energy companies, upon states, and ultimately upon the American people in the form of higher costs for electricity. Yeah. We've only got about a minute and a half left time. Can you, in that this remaining time, just kind of give us some color? What was it like in the courtroom? What was the atmosphere? Give us what you can tell us about that. Well, I can tell you that the judges were very interested in the case. I mean, they had a lot of very pointed questions for both sides. I mean, the judges were very engaged in the case and asked a lot of important questions. And perhaps the most important one was a question raised about why this was being heard in the court and not in Congress. I mean, it was pointed out that this is something that should not be dealt with by the courts. This is not something that should be dealt with by an administrative agency. This is the sort of rule that should be dealt with by the United States Congress and should be debated on the House and Senate floors. And judges wanted to know why that, was not, why that wasn't happening. They wanted to know why it was unelected judges were having to deal with this instead of elected officials and why they should be making this decision. And, I think and that's what's the answer? Up. I don't know what the answer is. I think the judges are going to have to grapple with that and decide if this is the sort of rule that they should be making or if this is the sort of rule that ultimately they should defer back and say, Congress, if this is what you want to be put in place, this is something you should do not something that the courts should be ruling on. Now, I, this may be out of your scope, and we're, we're down to about 30 seconds, but if we have a President Trump and a Republican House and Senate, do you think there's a chance that the, the legislative body would rule on this before it ever makes it uh, to the Supreme Court? Well, I think it's entirely possible that uh, in, that, in that circumstance, the president might choose to withdraw the rule 
in order to rework it or rewrite it. And the, the executive branch has that power. They could decide not to defend the rule, and so it would die that way. But that's, of course, pure speculation. We can't know yeah. what the government will do, whoever becomes president. And so we well, it does bring out the importance of this election. We're out of time. I appreciate Kaya Mandam Bao. Thank you so much for talking with us. You're here. We've been talking with the Council for Energy and Environment Legal Institute. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back with our next segment in just a moment. Thank you for having me. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The United States Justice Foundation since 1979 has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about the oral arguments that were heard in Washington, D.C. in the Circuit Court on September 27th. And in this segment we have another attorney who's been involved in this case and who was there in the room that day to kind of give us that first-hand report of what happened at uh, as the oral arguments were presented. We're going to talk in this segment with Jeff Homestead, who is a partner and head of the Environmental Strategies Group with Bracewell Law. Jeff, thanks for joining me once again on America's Voice for Energy. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You always give us such good insight, and you and I have talked before about this very situation and this very story and it didn't this didn't play out exactly as expected what i mean is a few months ago we didn't it was thought that it was going to go before the dc circuit court in what was it june can you can you kind of clarify that for us well yes the the in in fact, in, in all cases that I'm aware of, um, when, a, when a case is appealed, whether, whether it's an agency rule or, or a, a ruling by a lower court, um, it's appealed to the, to the circuit court, and a circuit court has anywhere from 10 to 15 judges. But then three judges are chosen at random to hear that case, and that's called a three-judge panel. Um, and it, it, what happens is if a, 
if one of the parties, if the losing party is unhappy with the uh, with the result from the from the three judge panel, it can petition the whole court to hear the case to basically hear an appeal from the three judge panel. That's called a petition for rehearing on banc, and those are almost never granted. It it may happen um, once a year at a court. It, it's very unusual for that to happen. The thing that happened in this case is we were preparing for the three-judge panel, which was scheduled for June 2nd, and just a few weeks before the case was scheduled to be argued, we got a notice from the court saying that the full court was going to hear the case and that it would be pushed back until September 27th. And um, as far as anybody has been able to determine, that's the first time that's ever happened, that, that the court has stepped in without a request from the parties and said, we're going to hear this with the full court and not just with the three-judge panel. Now, what was there was a court decision on this matter previously um, that caused the Supreme Court then to step in. What was that story? How far back was that? Well, there's actually been litigation over this rule for a while, um, but, prob- <laughs> but, 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 but because there were some lawsuits trying to prohibit EPA from even finalizing the rule. Normally you can't finalize a rule until you, you can't you can't challenge a rule until it's finalized, but because of some legal issues, there was an argument made by a few of the states and several companies that EPA should be prohibited from even finalizing it. That that, that was rejected by the DC Circuit and, and they said it's just premature. You have to wait until the rule is final. Um, one of the things that you can do in a case like this one is go to the court and say, while you are reviewing this rule, it should be put on hold. Because normally, no matter how controversial the rule is, no matter how many people sue, the rule remains in effect while the litigation is going on. But you can ask the court to, to stay the rule, to put it on hold. Um, we the, literally the day that that uh, the rule was finalized and published in the Federal Register, we filed not only a challenge but a request for a stay from the D.C. Circuit. Um, the D.C. Circuit rejected that request. Um, that, that's what must be what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yes, the D.C. So, so, Circuit rejecting so, it. Right. So they they rejected it, but they did agree to to hear it on an expedited basis. When they when they refused to stay the case, we went to the Supreme Court and said, you know, this goes so far beyond EPA's legal authority and has such far reaching impacts that that you Supreme Court should stay the rule. And, And for the first time in history, literally, the Supreme Court stepped in and agreed and put the rule on hold, stayed the rule so that during this litigation, the rule is not in effect. So there's already been some some very unusual and historic things that have happened in this case. Now, just to clarify, when the Supreme Court said this, if if I recall correctly, the EPA pretty much thumbed their nose at the Supreme Court and said, we don't care, we're going to enforce this anyway. Well, no, no, that that's not quite right. That's not quite right. They, they. Um, so you're, see, so you're an attorney, and I'm an opinion columnist. So we, we have <laughs> right. well, well, You've got to be really accurate. I have to. So what EPA said is, um, we can't enforce the rule. Um, that the deadlines that are coming up are, are obviously going to be pushed back, but because this rule is really requires states to take action. It said, if there are states who want to proceed, then we will continue to give them technical support and help them. So so the way EPA couched it, and really the only way they could do this is it could, because there's no way you can enforce a rule that's been stayed, but there are um, 
somewhere around between 15 and 18 states um, that are supportive of the rule, and and they wanted to continue the planning and the other things, and so EPA has been helping them do that. And and there's a there's a real argument, I think, that that's inconsistent with with uh, with certainly the spirit of the state, even if it's not legally prohibited. The, the Supreme Court obviously intended that people put their pens down and uh, and that no one would be required to do anything to comply with the rule until it's actually reviewed by this by the Supreme Court. But obviously, if you've got a state that is favorable to this kind of ideology, they could continue continue down this path. Right, right. No, and and so the EPA has been you know working with those states. Although I will tell you, and you may have, we may have covered this on an on an earlier conversation. You know, there are 29 states that are challenging the rule. There are 18 states that are supporting the rule. But if you look at how the 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 burden of the rule, the, those states that are supporting EPA have to do virtually nothing. And in fact, some of them may benefit financially because um, they the, because it, of the makeup of their electrical uh, right right grid. because right and so the, the states that are supporting the rule are the states that already have the highest electricity cost in the nation like California and the New England states and and they um, they'd like the, the rest of the country to have like the, the same burden the Right, so they want the rest of the country to look like California or New England, notwithstanding the fact that they have the highest electricity prices, and 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 so, the you know very little is required of those states that are supporting the rule, but of the 29 states that are opposing, I think they they have to make up something like 85 percent of the emission reductions that the rule is requiring. So they have a much bigger burden. Oh yes, much bigger. Any any state that has any kind of significant um, dependence on coal uh, has a, has a has a much higher burden. Yeah, you know, we were talking in the last segment with Kaya Mendelbau, and he was telling us, um, you know, who presented and what what happened. But in my reading, uh, studying up on this. It seems like both sides, both who support the rule and those who oppose the rule, which would include you and me, um, felt like they had a victory. Can you tell us kind of what it was like there on that uh, on that front? Sure. sure. Um, the, the, fir- the first thing, it was an extraordinary day because uh, the court had, had allocated three hours and 40 minutes for this oral argument. And normally, in a case, you know, the, the, they give you a time limit and that you might go a minute or two over uh, if the court allows you to, but they, they stick pretty closely. In this case, they, they paid no attention to the time limit that they, that they themselves had set. And so instead of having three hours and 40 minutes, we ended up having almost seven hours of oral argument. So, you know, it was obvious that the judges had a lot of questions. Um, I, I think they all must recognize that there are serious legal questions, at least about this about this rule. So it went on all day, and and as again, as far as I know, it's the it's the only time that the full DC Circuit has, has sat all day long to hear a case. Um, th- there is there is enough at stake in this case that that really some of the best oral advocates in the country were involved. And so I, I do think it's fair to say that, um, that, the, that the issues were well argued on, on each side. Um, and, and so, you know, both sides, I think, can appropriately feel good about the, the way they presented their case to the court. It, it's always um, 
uh, challenging, <laughs> or some might say it's a fool's errand to predict how the court will come out based on oral argument, because you yeah. know, a lot of these people are basically debaters who can take either side, and they ask tough questions on both sides, um, uh, and, and that, that happened. Yeah, in- some of what I read said something to that effect, and it said it's hard to know which side... Were they just playing devil's advocate, or were they really, you know, holding the view that you maybe thought they had? Right, and and it, and it's often difficult to it's often difficult to see that. So, what what's your opinion, or can you tell us that, or can you you know, if you can't tell us your your opinion because you are you're how are you a party to this case? Well, so so I represent one of the lead um, one of the lead challengers, one of the lead petitioners. Okay. Uh, I represent a group called the American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity, typically mm-hmm. known as ACE, and and mm-hmm. ACE is is made up of a number of utilities that 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 have a lot of coal-fired generation, um, a lot of the coal producers, and then a lot of the railroads who, who haul coal. So this is a, uh, so the, the ACE has been for many years the voice of coal in, in Washington and around the country. And so I, I represent ACE in, in the case. And, and so there are obviously some things that I, um, in, you know, in terms of legal strategy and other things that I, I can't share sure. with you. Um, but, 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 you know, Here's what I would say. First of all, there was a, a very disturbing or at least unfortunate development that happened uh, just a few days before the case was heard. Um, there had been two judges, that two Democratic appointees who were recused from mm-hmm. the case. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so even though there are 11 active judges on the court, only nine of them were participating because two of them had been recused. One is Chief Judge Garland because mm-hmm. uh, because his nomination before the Supreme Court is, is pending. And the other one is, is, a, is a relatively young judge appointed by Obama named Nina Pillard. And, or, I'm sorry, Pillard. And uh, no one knew for sure why she was recused, but but in all the stages of the litigation, she has recused herself. But on Friday, we got a note saying that uh, that she was going to participate in the case, and and that went from you know a, a nine judge panel with five. Democratic appointees to four Republican appointees. Now we have a panel of ten with six Democratic appointees to four, and that may not sound like such a big difference, but what it means is, um, you know, our, our case is so strong, strong. We are sure that 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 well, we're quite confident that that uh, the Republicans are likely to to uh, to read the laws the, the way it is, which is mm-hmm. certainly cuts in our favor. But then we would need to get um, at least one of the Democratic appointees to agree. But with with this new judge on the case, that meant that we now needed two, two Democratic appointees to agree with our side on the case. Now, th- th- there was a number of, of Democratic judges who clearly asked tough questions of EPA. And so, you know, we, we may well get, get several. Um, but, but, it, but it did change the complexion of the court. Well, I'm glad you explained that because I had heard that it was going to be two recused nine judges, and then all the reports I've read said ten, and I didn't really hear why why that was. Uh, we're down to just a few seconds left, Jeff, and we're a minute over time here. Thanks for your insights on this. Appreciate it, and we'll be back on, Amer- on America's Voice for Energy in just a moment. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. 
His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. This week we've been talking about the Clean Power Plan and specifically about its day in court at the D.C. Appellate Court where oral arguments were heard on September 27th. At this time, I'm delighted to welcome back with us Congressman Kevin Kramer from North Dakota. But specifically, he's with us tonight, not just as Congressman Kevin Kramer from North Dakota, but also as Trump's energy advisor. In this presidential election, we have very different views in the two candidates on the clean power plan and what should be done about it in the future. So, Congressman, thanks for joining me once again on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you, Marita. Pleasure to be with you. So what are we going to do with this? Uh, the Clean Power Plan, has, has, as we've talked about previously in the show, had its day in court, and both sides seem to feel really positive about how the, the day went for them. They feel like they argued their case well. But, you know, it may all be a moot issue, really, depending on who wins on November 8th. Well, there's no question. There are a couple of scenarios. And, of course, their day in court, as you noted, is with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and and all ten ten members of the court heard the the, uh, case. And and I can see why both sides would claim some victory. I mean, the, the judges clearly peppered both defense or challengers and, and uh, plaintiffs in the, in the case yeah, on different excuse things. Me, were, were you in the room for that day or were you, have you heard the report? I was not. I, was not. I, I, I did okay. listen to the audio of it later and, and read the transcript. Okay. But, but, but you're right. The, the both sides probably feel somewhat confident. I, I think on the, on the one hand, they seem to question the, the process and the rulemaking itself and the process that, that they went through. And that's, that's all oftentimes where, uh, the agencies have gotten into gotten themselves into a lot of trouble. I mean, North Dakota is a classic example where the proposed rule called for an emission reduction of 11 percent, and the final rule 45 percent, and that's by wow. definition arbitrary and capricious. So that that was a pretty, you know, that's that that shows you that the process probably wasn't followed very well. On, yeah, on the matter of, whether, one, of, one of the reports that I read about it, and, and I was not there either, but one of the reports mm-hmm. I read said something to the effect of that the the draft rule was so dramatically different from the final rule that it really needed to be re, I don't know what the right word is, but have new public hearing. Sure. So that's right. So it would be remanded back to the, to the agency itself. And, and that's off, that often happens because the courts, of course, are not experts, if you will. They're not the scientific experts. And, and so that's when you get 
you know, you get this uh, this process of just remanding it back to the agency for further review. So they're really just questioning the process itself, whether it was upheld by the administrative agency. However, on the matter of law, whether or not under Section 112 of the Clean Air Act they even have this authority, there seem to be some, not certainly not consensus, but uh, maybe perhaps the majority of the judges have felt like since Mercury, Mercury is already, um, you know, uh, governed under 112 that, so might greenhouse gases. So, but I, I think your point about the election is, is, you know, which is really the question of the day. Of course, right. we say, well, this is probably going to go to the Supreme Court anyway, um, regardless of how it turns out at the D.C. Circuit. But although I would say this, Marita, I think an interesting political point here is that those 10 judges on the D.C. Circuit, several of them were are very liberal Obama judges that were put on the court as a result of Harry Reid busting up the filibuster rule in, in you know, Christmas of 2013, remember when he, when he did the nuclear option and um, went with a straight majority, and some of these justices, judges, including Judge Pillard, for example, won on a 51 to 49 confirmation. Uh, uh-huh, that, wow. You know, so, so this, and this is what we warned, you know, supposed pro-energy Democratic senators about, said if, you, if you're going to blow up, if you exercise a nuclear option on this, this is not to break gridlock. This is to flood the main court of appeals and the main court of appeals for, for lawsuits or challenges to the federal government, such as the EPA, um, with, with you know, environmentally extreme judges. And that's exactly what we're seeing played out playing out right now. So, but, you know, the, the judge that you mentioned, Pilar, from my research, she asked some really good questions, I believe. Sure. Well, and to her credit, you know, she's an interesting judge in that she, first of all, she um, recused herself. So, you know, we, nobody knows. I don't know why she recused herself. I don't know if it had to do with, you know, some. Sometimes it might be because of some investments or, you know, that you might have or your family might have. And then maybe she eventually, um, you know, got rid of those investments, um, divested herself of them, and then, then, then reasserted herself. But she reasserted herself, you know, within a week of the Just, just of the, the day, uh, oral uh, days before, the, days before yeah. the oral argument, right. I understand. Right. So anyway, all of that said, we know this is going to go to the Supreme Court where there's now a four, four you know, conservative liberal court. Now, that doesn't mean that all, you know, four on each side agree on this Right, right, but they topic. do tend to vote that way. They do tend to vote that way. And so that brings up, I think it highlights, of course, one of the more important aspects of this election. And, and so what I would think is that there's a couple of ways that, say, for example, a Trump presidency could affect this. One way they could affect it is by, um, I'm, I'm, si- I'm sitting on a street, if that's <laughs> next to a street, which is that noise you're hearing. But, but yeah, you and I are both in noisy locations. You uh, tell, I love it. Just, that's, just that's for the, the heck of it, tell us where you are. So I, I, I'm in um, La Jolla, actually, California, where I just spoke to or participated in the panel uh, discussion with the American Gas Association on this topic. As a matter of fact, the CPP as well and, as and, the uh, Paris Agreement and things like that. So. And just to define my noise, I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association annual meeting. So, you know, we're both having a tough time tonight, but we got noisy background. It's tough duty. But anyway, so so the one way that the you know the new administration could affect the clean power plant, especially given its its legal um, sort of flaws. Uh, in the best case scenario, it would be, of course, when they appoint a new 
a new uh, U.S. Attorney General and new new uh, judge or new uh, attorneys that would carry these cases out. They could simply go to the Supreme Court and say, "Look, we've read the you know some of the problems with this. We see that there are some flaws. We would like it uh, remanded back to us." Um, or they could just blow the case. I think the other possibility, of course, and the better possibility would be to appoint a, a fifth uh, smart judge, um, much more like a uh, much more like a Scalia than right. uh, than certainly uh, Hillary Clinton would appoint, and that would help settle it as well. But but I actually think it could be handled much quicker by uh, you know a different a different bank of lawyers that have a different worldview. So you perceive that if. If Trump is elected, and, and is this probably what you said today on your panel, you perceive that if a if we have a Donald Trump presidency, that 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 presidency could possibly prevent it from ever going to the Supreme Court based on the judges that would be arguing the case. Am I am I right on that? I, I think it could, Marita, and I'm certainly not an expert on it. But let's face it, you know, if you have a if you have a, a, an attorney that feels, you know, that worships climate change, for example, they're going to pursue a case uh, in oral arguments much differently than an attorney who has a much more realistic view of climate change and America's unilateral disarmament and role in it, which is what the Clean Power Plan is. And so I think, you know, that's kind of an extreme description of it, but there, but there is that. But I think you could even, again, based on already the fact that this thing was stayed by a, by a, by a federal court, the fact that this is probably going to be a split decision of some sort in, in the D.C. Circuit Court, um, that it would be confusing enough that a, a new, again, new bank of lawyers could say to the courts, um, you know, we need to bring this thing back and we need to improve this process. And, and frankly, even if it goes to that, even if it goes, if it's remanded back to the agency, um, you know, say they're given deference legal deference but that the process wasn't followed right that that gets that clock going again that you know you can slow walk this thing for a very very long time remember it also calls for state implementation plans they could provide much more time for states to come up with implementation plans uh you know come up with work with states to come up with more realistic um emission standards there's a lot of ways that a new administration could affect this this rule if not completely repeal it. Well, I'm interested that you were on a panel today um, with uh, you. I believe, if I understood correctly, before we got on the air, you said you were with uh, one a Hillary a Clinton representative as well. Is that correct? That's true. That was there were two of us. Um, Ron Brownstein moderated uh, a discussion, or sort of a sit down coffee table discussion between. Uh, uh, myself and, and a Hillary Clinton advisor uh, in in a lot of the discussion with the of course the American Gas this was American Gas Association so these are gas utility executives of course centered around the the bridge if you will the transition uh, from a, a fossil fuel or coal based um, you know base base load generation to a you know a renewable and of generation the gas guys kind of like this because this is good for them. Well, they used to like it. <laughs> they liked it when it was gas versus coal. But now that it now that gas has been 
put on the outs uh, along with coal by the environmental movement led by the Sierra Club. You, you might recall that Chesapeake Gas a few years yep. ago you know, made a $25 million contribution to the effort <laughs> only to be repudiated once uh, they were successful. And, uh, and they have now that, by the way, gas for the first time is going to supersede coal in terms of entire greenhouse gas emissions in the United States of America. So suddenly they're the dirty fuel. And this is how, yeah. uh, you know, this is how the, the story goes. So, um, you know, Hillary Clinton herself said about natural gas that it's, it's a bridge to a cleaner energy resource, and uh, it's a bridge I hope we can cross quickly. So, you know, you don't well, make... Well, of course, you know, Nancy Pelosi, you, you know Nancy Pelosi back whenever said that she thinks natural gas is a wonderful alternative to fossil fuels. Yeah, right, that's right. Yeah, you can't make that stuff up, can you? No, you can't, uh, you can't. It's, it's priceless. So what was the t what was the attitude there when, they, when the people there heard the Hillary representative versus hearing you as the Trump representative? What was the attitude, and we've only got about a minute left. Sure. Well, I will tell you this. I think most of them, like a lot of business people, are looking for, for people who are willing to have a reasonable discussion. You know, you have on the one hand climate change worshipers. On the other hand, you have what are called the climate change deniers, right? And many people put me in that right. box. But the vast majority of the people are somewhere in between. And I think these executives, like a lot of people, are looking for, for sort of common sense in the middle, um, you know, people that – and by the way, I would advocate, Marita, much like it was done with mercury and socks and Knox and particulate matter, that, that if, if the EPA seriously uh, wanted to work to reduce emissions, they'd work with the technological experts, they would work with the companies, they'd work with the states, and they would come up with some reasonable emission reductions, and then they'd work on the technology that in, would include coal and go, uh, uh, gas and oil as well as nuclear and wind and solar and all of those others. Well, of course, you and I both know that a brand-new coal-fired power plant, if we were allowed to build one in America, would have the latest, greatest technology and would be a totally different power plant from what we saw 50 years ago. I actually know that, that they, you could have very soon, I believe, uh, through Alum Cycle or some other technologies that are being developed, uh, to scale that you could actually have an emissions-free coal-fired power plant through the coal gasification process and closed loop. And, you know, it, it, there, innovators will figure this thing out as long as you don't kill the industry before the innovators can figure it out because the innovators yeah. are in the industry. We're out of time, Congressman Kevin Kramer. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us once again on America's Voice for Energy. For our listeners, join us once again next week on America's Web Radio for the next edition of America's Voice for Energy. Thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.